Phil, if you uh, maybe maybe some of you have heard uh, that the sermon today is kind of like the ADD version of a sermon. Uh, I don't I didn't do it that way because I'm ADD. But all I want you to do is look at your notes. Okay, pick up your notes at the top, right under the Living Under the Influence uh, logo. It's kind of the main point of the day is that we as Christians cannot begin to do the things God wants us to do or cease to do the things he does not want us to do until we first understand who we are. That's the big picture. And then under the big picture is where it gets a little crazy. There's three main points, A, B, and C. And under A, B, and C, there are 16 other points, all out of order. So the numbering, it's, it wasn't the person who printed it out. I did it that way on purpose, just to keep us all awake, to keep us all guessing, and to keep us all maybe focused. We'll see. So, so some people have come up and said, that's that was great. I love those numbers in different order. And some people are like, oh, I didn't know what you're doing. So that's all right. So we've got to get through. Uh, we get to. We get to go through Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 14. So um, if you're ready, if we get through this, uh, we'll have some extra rewards in heaven when we get there, I think. All right. One of the worst ways that you or I could study the Bible, take it out flip it and stick our finger there and read whatever we point to in a couple verses. A lot of us do that. But I think one of the reasons why that's not such a good idea is because we can point to a couple verses, read a few verses and say, thank you, Jesus, that's what I needed today. Now, I don't doubt that that can happen sometimes and it does happen. And God's word does not return unto him void when it's when it's read or spoken. But a lot of times what happens is we forget to read those verses in the context of which we're reading it. We forget the verses around it. We forget the chapters before it. We forget the chapters after it. And so we, we sometimes don't get all the, the, the fullness of what exactly it's trying to say. But that's what we're doing to you with Ephesians. We flip through Ephesians and put our finger down in chapter 5. So what I think we need to do is real quickly look at chapters 1 through 4. Very quickly. And figure out what those are talking about, because I think that's key. If we're going to understand the next four or five weeks of this series, Living Under the Influence, which is all talking about the things we're supposed to do and the things we're not supposed to do as Christians. So the first four chapters of Ephesians, through about verse oh, 21 or 22 in Ephesians, there's not one command to us as Christians. Paul doesn't give us any commands. But then after that, there's about 36 or so commands uh, through chapter just chapter five and six, and the thread that is is strung all throughout the first four chapters is Paul teaching us and telling us how we are in Christ as Christians, how the the, the reason we do what we do is because of who we are and who God has created us to be. And when we talk about being in Christ, it's kind of like if you think of an athlete when they say the you know basketball player is in the zone. It's not like they've jumped into this magical box labeled the zone. It's just that they're playing at a higher level than everybody else on the team is playing, or everybody else on the court. And so when we talk about being in Christ, it's not that we jump into a magic Jesus box, but what it is, is that because of our salvation and our faith in Christ, what happens is we receive blessings, and we receive gifts, and we receive an inheritance of God, and we, we have that uh, permanently on the basis of our faith. And we live at this level that people who don't know Christ live at. So kind of think of being in Christ as being in the zone. Um, I, don't have, I don't have time to uh, really talk about every statement of being in Christ through the first four chapters. But what I'd encourage you to do this week is, is look through the first four chapters of Ephesians. Read it. Study it. And find those statements to find out who you are in Christ if you're a Christian. And that will help you understand greatly the next four or five weeks. If you turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. In a lot of versions, it starts out with the word therefore. If you have the NIV, it says, be imitators of God, therefore. And I learned in college, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to see what it's there for. Imagine if you had a best friend. They wrote you a letter, and the letter started out like this. Therefore, pack all your bags, get all your non-perishable food items in a bag, and move to the closest bomb shelter tomorrow. Your question would be, Why? And that would be a pretty hard letter to start out, or a little hard line to start out reading and saying, therefore, because it begs the question of why, and that's what, that's what he does in, in chapter 5. 
Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. So we have to ask the question, why? And and I think he answers it of who we are and who he is. So in Ephesians chapter five, verse one, let's let's go here. It says the imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So your point number one is imitate God. I have a fascination, I don't know if you do, but I do with people who can imitate people, do impersonations, make cool animal noises, and do a good job at it. One of my favorite comedians uh, who does this is Frank Caliendo. Uh, he is, uh, he's been on Mad TV, he's on uh, Fox NFL Sundays during, during the football season, because he, and they have him on there because he just does a wonderful John Madden impersonation. It's just spot on John Madden. And um, John Madden actually doesn't like it, but he does a really good job. Um, we're going to watch a video of Frank Caliendo. He's singing, take me out to the ball game as John Madden, George Bush, number two, uh, Dr. Phil, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and a bunch of different people. So let's, let's check it out and watch Frank Caliendo. Take me out to the baseball game. Are you really taking me? Are you taking me to the ball game, huh? Take me out with the mob. It's Sopranos night. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. You cracker jack. I don't care if you ever get back. Seriously, I do not care. I mean, actually, I care a little bit, but uh, I'm not going to dwell on that right now. Porridge. Beer goes with that hot dog. If they don't win. It's a shame what you probably feel every day when you look in the mirror. For it's one. Two, three, four, five strikes at the old ball Sorry about that. I forgot the line about the mustard and ketchup. <laughs> uh, I told the nine o'clock hour, save your emails on, you know, if you, if you think we don't like George Bush or something. But I think that's hilarious. Um, a couple of weeks ago, too, here at church, we had a ventriloquist come. And he, that guy could do four or five different voices, every other word in the same act. It was amazing. And when we hear something like that, when we hear someone impersonate someone or, or, or do something in, along those lines, what do we do? We get in our car or we lock ourselves in the bathroom and we get in front of the mirror and we try to do it ourselves, right? I can do John Madden just as well as that Frank Kelly and no guy, right? That's what we do. We try it ourselves. I remember coming home from the, the uh, ventriloquist act here at church and my six-year-old son, Jack, he was in the backseat of the car. He said, Dad, how does that guy do that? I said, well, he talks without moving his lips. And he's like, can you do that? I was like, yes, I can. Check it out. Can I do a good job? He's like, no, that wasn't really good. He did a better job. <clears throat> so but here's the thing. I don't think Paul is asking us to imitate our favorite celebrity. I think a lot of us would have a more comfortable time coming up here and imitating our favorite celebrity or making, you know, some animal noise if we wanted to. But what if what if I asked you up here, asked you to come up here and I said, Imitate God for us. What would you do? I think a lot of us wouldn't know exactly where to start with that. But I think Paul uh, gives us some ideas here. Uh, look in verse 1 still. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. He wants to remind us, Paul wants to remind us, that we are children of God. Going back to those first four chapters of who you are, he brings us back and says, you're a child of God, therefore imitate God, your Father. He says, not only are we children of God, but we're dearly loved children of God. All of us want to be a dearly loved child, don't we? Begs the question, too, well, how can I be a child of God? How do we become a child of God? John 1.12 says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we receive Jesus Christ through repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ and who He is, that He is God in the flesh, that He lived a sinless life on the earth that none of us could ever live, and He died a death in our place for our sins and took upon Himself the wrath of God that we deserved. And then three days later, He rose again. When we put our faith in Christ and turn from our sin, that's how we become a child of God. Paul echoes this point in the well-known passage of Ephesians 2, 8-10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
A lot of times we forget verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. It is not our good works that get us into heaven. It's not our good works that give us eternal life. It's not our good works that, uh, that, that bring us the faith that God wants us to have. Our works are important, as we learned last week, uh, as Pastor Steve was talking about the, the Bema judgment seat, that we will receive rewards in heaven for our works that we do on the earth. They are important, but they're not what, what constitutes our faith. They're not what uh, gives us salvation and eternal life. So back to the idea of being a child, a dearly loved child. Probably a lot of us in, a, in this room don't know what it means to be a dearly loved child. Maybe we didn't hear that very much from our, from our parents, if at all. Maybe we didn't see it acted out in how our parents treated us. Let's look at Jesus. On a few occasions, he heard from God the Father verbally to affirm his love for him and that he accepted him. In Luke 3, 21 and 22, it describes when Jesus was getting baptized. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. It was the Father's voice saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Uh, I heard one time, I think it was Josh McDowell, who was asked to speak at a parenting conference. So he got up on the stage and he read this verse, or just this line, and he said, The father said to the son, You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And he said, Parents, go home and tell that to your children and act it out. And he walked off the stage. I think, I think that verse preaches enough to us as parents. Uh, we can take a long time for us to figure it out. Another interesting thing about this verse, it was before Jesus had his disciples, before he did all of his miracles that are recorded in the Gospels, it was before he uh, was crucified, before he rose again. The love from the Father to the Son was not based upon the works that the Son did. And a lot of us have grown up in homes where the love from our parents to us was based upon how well we did in school. It was based upon how well we did in sports, based upon how well we cleaned the house, or in any number of things. But with the Father, that's not how it works. Our good works are important, but that's not the basis of His love. He loves us unconditionally. The book of First John says that God is love. So it just flows from the nature of who God is to us. Another thing that uh, a lot of us may not have experienced is loving discipline from our father or our parents. In Hebrews 12, 5-7 it says, And have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as, my, as sons? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. We've got to realize our parents aren't perfect. They know a lot, but our parents aren't perfect. And I think a lot of us, whether we're five or 50, are still longing for our parents to say, you're my son or daughter. I love you. I'm pleased with you. It's not because of what you do. And I think it would change a lot of people's lives if they heard that. And I think if the discipline, sometimes our discipline is marked by getting smacked for spilling the milk. It's kind of an overarching theme of discipline that, that, is, that has been put upon us, maybe. Some of us. But God says, my, my discipline is good. Don't forget it. It's good for you. And I accept you as a son. And that's why I discipline you. Another verse. Paul wrote, it's not in your notes, but it's Romans 8.39. It says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants us to know, and he wrote Romans, Paul wants us to know that we are dearly loved children. And that should drive us to imitate the one who dearly loves us. It doesn't happen all the time, but I, th I think... A lot of times when a child is dearly loved, they know it, they hear it, they see it from their parents. 
A lot of times that child is going to want to imitate that parent who is dearly loving them. And that's what Paul wants us to see. So he reminds us we're children of God, and he goes on to tell us what to do. It's point number three in your notes. is to live a life of love. In verse two of, cha- or verse two of chapter five, he says, And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're supposed to live a life of love. What does love look like? A life of love. What does that look like? I think in America we have screwed up what the meaning of love is to the point where most teenagers, the first time I ask them, you know, let's say I ask them as a group, what is love? Define love. Uh, it's a feeling I kind of get when I look across the room and catch eyes with that special someone. That's pretty much the gist of it. Um, and that's a lot of times what, what we feel or what, or what we think love is, is that it's a feeling. Um, DC Talk said love is a verb. That's going back. Uh, but I, I don't want to try, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder from two weeks from now, so I'll, I'll keep it short. But look at verse 29 in chapter 5. It says, No one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. What is the opposite of love? Hate. So let's read it again. For no one ever hated his own body, but. Something I say, there's a lot of big buts in the Bible, and this is one of them. When you see the word but, it usually means something in front of the but. It's going to be the opposite of what's after the but. So this is a big but in the Bible. So let's read it again. It says, no one ever hated his own body but. And what we could do is say, but he loves it. But what Paul did is he said, I want to clarify it because I bet back then, 2,000 years ago, people screwed up the meaning of love as well. So he says, but he feeds and cares for it. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, uh, and I might drive you to get a new one. Uh, ladies, you might want to get a new one after I say this, but there's different translations of those words feed and care for. And I'll tell you what those are now. <laughs> uh, there's three phrases under, under point number three that I've put down there that I'd like you to fill in. The first one is feed and care for, kind of like a dog or a plant. That's not how we would like to think about love, is it? Feed and care for like a dog or a plant. You know, We kind of get that. The next one, though, is provide and protect. Now, men, we get this one. We're like, I like this one. Why do we like this one? Because most of us men, if we have kids who sleep in our home, while everyone else is asleep and we're laying in our beds, what do we do? We think about the mysterious person who could walk through our door, who could steal from us, who could hurt our family. So we think about the way that we're going to swing from the door, kick him with both feet, uppercut him in the chin, throw him over, tie his hands up with our T-shirt, and then call 911, right? Provide and protect. We get that, right, guys? Okay, now if you have New American Standard or the English Standard Version, it says nourish and cherish. Ladies, you like that one. That's how you want your man to love you, right? Nourish and cherish you. So how we define love is different than the world defines love. God defines it right here. So now, whenever you're asked, what is love? Take them to Ephesians 5.29. It's feeding and caring for. It's providing and protecting. It's nourishing and cherishing. Teenagers, if a boyfriend or girlfriend ever says, I love you, your next question should be, what does that mean? Punch him and run away. No. Um, So, we all need to understand what love is, and he tells us. Um, this isn't in your notes as well, but Mark, in Mark 12, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, what we need to think about is, okay, if we're supposed to love God and love other people, do we feed and care for God? No, I don't know about that. Do we provide and protect God? Well, we protect His name. We, you know, provide Him with, you know, we help share the gospel with people and, and they get saved. And, um, but I think we nourish and cherish God. We nourish our relationship with God by cherishing Him. And, and, and the word cherishes means holding close to your heart. So what do you hold close to yourself? It should be God. And when we think about loving people, the second greatest commandment, we feed and care for people? Well, yeah, we do. Do we provide and protect? Yes, we do. 
Do we nourish and cherish people? Sure. That's what love is in a nutshell. You can define it with two words if you want to somebody. And I think if you said, oh, love is to provide and protect, they'd freak out because it's so different as what, to, to what the world is telling us. Most of us have heard the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that defines love as patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That is the way we're supposed to love in our lives. It's the outworking of God, who is love, working in us to outwardly show other people. We're patient, kind, not envious. And, and those things are how providing and protecting are worked out. That's what it looks like. How do, I, how do I provide and protect? How do I nourish and cherish somebody? Well, you're patient with them. You're kind to them. You're not rude to them. So that's what love is. He says, live a life of love. Is your life a life of love? Is it marked by providing and protecting, nourishing and cherishing? In verse 3, this is where we're going to get our Greek lesson. It says, but among you, there must not be any hint even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. If you look in your notes at points four, five, and six, you'll notice the three words he uses. Sexual immorality, that's the first one. Impurity and greed. God is very smart. And uh, I think he chose these terms on purpose. And what I like to call these terms if you can follow me, they're called junk drawer terms. That's what I call them. Now, there's not junk. It's, there's no junk about the terms. But what I mean by junk drawer is we've all got one in our kitchen, right? We open it. We can find a pen, a screwdriver, a map, a flashlight, AA batteries. It's all there. So what God did is say, you know what? I think I'm going I'm to pick a term that a lot can go into that drawer to define that term. And he's smart because he knows humans. What do we like? We like lists. What do I do and what don't I do? And why do we like lists? We like lists so we can find a loophole in the list or find an extra one and say, ha, it wasn't on the list. Right? That's how it works. But God's like, nope, can't do that. Sexual immorality, the Greek word is pornea, where we get our word pornography from. It's not specifically talking about images on a screen or in print that we look at, but it includes it. Um, it's referring to any form of sexuality outside the bounds of marriage. And anything that basically arouses the desires and are worked out in, the, in, in our actions um, apart from marriage. Song of Solomon says, don't awaken love until it pleases. Don't awaken it until it pleases. So what we could do, we could make a list, right? We could start making a list. What could we put into this drawer of sexual immorality? We could start making a list. You're going to have the one person in the room in the back who's like, yeah. Why? Well, because they found one that we didn't put on the list. I think God would tell that person, if you're that person, I think he'd put that at the top of the list for you. So there's a lot that can go in there. The next word is impurity, or in the Greek it is catharsia, which is where we get our words catharsis or catheter from. If you don't know the word catheter, ask your parents today and have a fun conversation. Uh, so I'll... I'll I'll talk about the word catharsis. Basically, basically what it's referring to is, is removing something from you. And the word catharsis is used uh, in relation to when we're watching a movie, when we are watching a TV show, TV show or a play. It says we're in the state of catharsis. What that means is when we walk through the door and we begin to watch this certain thing, our emotions and our thoughts are kind of left at the door. Our reality is kind of left at the door and they bring us into it into a new reality that changes our emotions, it changes our thoughts, it makes us, it drives us into a certain path of how, how that movie director wanted you to think or feel. It's kind of like if you go into a scary movie. Right before you walk into the scary movie, you're not scared and you're not like, you know, you're not having those emotions and thoughts and stuff, but then you want, when you get in, ladies, what do you do? You're scared and you grab your husband's, you know, arm with your nails and then guys, nourish and cherish. Right? Don't, 
No? That's what happens. It drives you. So when, when we're talking about many forms of impurity or catharsia, what we're talking about are actions and thoughts that are accompanied by emotions that are not initially desired. I mean, sometimes you go into impurity or sin and wanting to feel a certain way, but, but I think what happens is when we engage ourselves in things that are impure, what are they accompanied by? Guilt and shame. Like Dr. Phil and it. Shame is what you feel every day when you look in the mirror. You know? I hope not. I hope not. God doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want us to look in the mirror every day and feel shame. And a lot of times what happens is our, our, the impurity takes the form of indulging in something that God created good and can be used in a good way in the right context. But what we do is sometimes take it out of context and use it in a wrong way. And a lot of those times what happens? What do we do? We want to look around, see who's watching. We want to pull the shades so nobody looks through the, the, the windows. We shut our doors so nobody hears us. And sometimes it takes the form of maybe it's overeating at night and everybody else is asleep. Maybe it's getting drunk when you're out of town where nobody's going to see you. Maybe it's looking at things on the Internet or on your cell phone when everybody's asleep. Maybe it's shutting yourself up in your room and gossiping with a friend over the phone about someone else and you shut your door so your kids won't hear you. Whatever it is, he says there shouldn't even be a hint. That's hard. One uh, commentator who said, you know, was talking about this imitate God thing. He said that's the highest standard ever given to man. The highest standard. Imitate God. Live a life of love. Don't let even a hint of this be in your life as a Christian. The third thing he says is greed. The Greek word is pleonexia. It's a new word for me this week, and it's actually in the English dictionary. Um, and the, fel- the founder of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, his name is Don McLannan, he said that pleonexia is a condition that has overtaken the U.S. It is an insatiable need for more of what I already have. I know it's overtaken me at times. And it takes the form of what? Well, we've got a TV with bunny ears. Not anymore, but we've got a TV. I want a bigger TV. I've got jeans, but my jeans aren't the jeans that I read about or saw in that magazine. So I've got to get those. I've got a beater car. I need a better car. Right? I've got an Xbox. I need an Xbox 360. Right? Got to have one. Yeah, I have one of those. Right? Someone put it this way. We spend money we don't have on stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. So there's truth in that. It's not in the Bible, but there's truth in that. But the main point in verse 3 comes out uh, in the next phrase. There shouldn't be a hint of any of these things because, in point 7 in your notes, because these are improper for God's holy people, Paul brings us back to who we are. We're God's holy people. We're God's saints. He created us to be God's, His holy people. The holy basically means set apart, different, set apart for His service kind of people. And that's what we're supposed to look like. The next thing that Paul tells us is that we, that we don't do now. That's a hint to where it is on your notes. Letter C. Point number eight. In verse 4, it says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So fill in the word obscenity there in point 8. Luke 6.45 says, Jesus said, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. I tell the teenagers a lot in youth group that... Uh, if I, if, if I could hover over you and your five closest friends and listen to you talk for an hour, I could be a pretty good judge of what your heart's like. Imagine if that was the case. Well, God is with us all the time. He's everywhere present, right? He's listening. And whatever is, is coming out of our mouth is a reflection of what's in our heart. And if what is in our heart are those three things, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, what's going to come out of our mouth? He tells you, obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. And, and it's, not just, it's not just cussing. A lot of times we kind of just, that's, well, that's, that's what it means. Don't 
say anything bad, just don't cuss. That's what that means. It's not what it means. Let me let me throw this at you for a moment. What I'd like to think that sometimes the, the this type of talk comes out of us when we're around a certain group of people or a certain person where we excuse our sin with this excuse. Well, I just I just feel so comfortable around that person or or those people. I can say whatever I want. They they get me. They understand me. So it's okay. That's excusing our sin and our foolish talk and our coarse joking. Um, I don't want to focus on those three things too much, but what I want to focus on is what I think is the remedy of those obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. The remedy says, but thanksgiving. There should be, you should give thanks. Point number nine. Give thanks. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So we're to give thanks in all circumstances? Yeah? What does all mean? All. So if a close relative dies, you give thanks to God? Yep. If you or a close friend is diagnosed with cancer, give thanks? Yeah. If your wife has a miscarriage, as mine did two, two, three months ago, give thanks? You do. And if only the only thing you can give thanks for is the next breath that comes out of your mouth, what it's going to do, what I think it does, it curbs the enemy, the devil, and what he wants to come out of your mouth. What does he want to come out of your mouth? Obscenity. He wants you to curse God for that circumstance. He wants you to talk foolishly with your buddies about it like it's no big deal. He wants us to joke about it like it, like it, like it doesn't matter. But he says to give thanks. I think that's, that's the remedy for our mouth, to give thanks, even if it's only the next breath that we take. And he says, he gives us a subtle reminder again of who we, who we are. He says, because these things are out of place. These should not be because it's out of place. I think the place he's talking about is within us. So what does the Bible say? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Correct? So this place is not the place that those things should be taking place. Right? That's, that's why he says they're out of place, because this isn't the right place for obscenity, coarse joking, foolish talk to come out of our mouth. It's the wrong place. I don't know that there is a right place, but he says this isn't the place for it. Verse 5, uh, is not on, it's, it's not in your notes, but it just jumps out at, a, out at us. And Paul says, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a man as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. So I don't want to shy away from the verse. We could spend a couple sermons on it. Um, but the good thing is that Pastor Steve did a couple weeks ago um, in avoiding your worst nightmare. Because um, a lot of us would look at that and say, oh, I'm greedy sometimes. Does that mean I'm not going to heaven? I'm not, I'm not in Christ? I would, I would drive you to listen to that sermon again and again and again um, to show how it's not our good works or good actions that get us salvation, eternal life, our faith. We will be rewarded for them, but our good works, if they're, whether they're present or not present, is going to show the true nature of our faith. And I'll leave it pretty much at that. Um, but over the past six months or so, uh, high schoolers, we've been studying First uh, uh, John. And I'm, it's pretty clear in First John. Um, and again, listen to Steve's sermon. <laughs> it, it, all through First John, it's so clear that the life of a believer is not marked by habitual, unrepentant, willful sin. That if you're confronted by someone about your sin, your reaction is basically giving them the finger and saying, forget it, I'm going to keep doing it. That is not the life of a believer. But what a life of a believer is marked by is a constant life of repentance and faith. And when the sin creeps up, no matter how long it takes, no matter how, how many people it takes, um, what happens is, with God's help, the hold that, that the sin has over you becomes less and less. It becomes less and less. So let's move on in verse 6, chapter 5. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. This is point 10 on your notes. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, the wrath of God, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. 
But no one deceives you with empty words. Let me share you some, with you some empty words that can deceive us. All roads lead to heaven. Just, just pick a religion. All roads lead there. All you have to do, just say a little prayer. And uh, you can live however you want and still up in he- end up in heaven by the skin of your teeth. Do whatever feels right. Do what's best for you because it's all about you and how far, far up on the ladder you can get in your company because it's, it's all about you. Here's one that I hear that quite frequently and it's even on like cartoon channels. The, the earth is the most important thing we can preserve. That's a lie. The most important thing we can preserve is the gospel and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Saving the earth isn't going to save you. And sometimes those words come from a certain unnamed talk show host around 4 o'clock every day. And sometimes we spend more time in their church and listening to their words than we do listening to God's word. If that's the case, you're going to be deceived. You will be. But it says... The people who are speaking those words are, are, are disobedient. They're disobedient to Jesus Christ. So why would we as Christians, why? Why would we want to listen to someone who is disobedient to Jesus Christ? Why would we want to take, take on their ideas and participate with them in their sin? He basically says this should not be. What's the, what's the opposite of empty words? I would say it's full words. Right? In John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.19 describes Christ. It says, For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him. So, if we're not supposed to be deceived by empty words, we're supposed to be encouraged, built up, you know, uh, strengthened by the full Word, who is Jesus Christ, and whose words are found in, in, in God's Word, the Bible, that we have. We need to spend more time listening to God's words than we do all those other empty words that mean nothing to us as Christians. Sometimes we've got to understand the other side and, uh, so that we can, we can use God's word to, to talk with people about them. But if we're spending more time with deceptive, empty words, we're going to be deceived. If we spend more time with them than we do in God's word. But once again, he's not just giving us an empty command to obey. He wants us to understand who God made us to be. This is point 11 on your notes. In verse 8, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So he says again, I'm bringing you back. It's not because of what you do. It's because of what Jesus has done. And now who you are, because you're a Christian, you are light in the Lord. In the Lord. In Christ. In the zone. Remember? A new level of living. All throughout the Bible, darkness is a symbol of sin, and light is a symbol of who God is and of holiness. And Paul says, you were darkness. You were sin. But now you are light. So what does he tell us to do because of the fact of who we are? He says you're light. So point 12, live as children of light. This doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We'll be perfectible, not sinless, but we will sin less and less. Philippians says that, that he who began a good work in, in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're a work in progress. We're being completed by God to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. He says in verse 9, chapter 5 here, that the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And this mirrors a lot of what Paul said in Ephesians 4, if you go and read it. He says that we were created in the likeness of God in His image in true righteousness and holiness. So that's how we're supposed to live. If you say you are a Christian, live like one. That's what he says. In verse 10 of chapter 5, which is point 13, he says, find out what pleases the Lord. How much time do we spend finding out what other people think about us? How am I going to please my boss? How am I going to please my parents? How am I going to please my son? 
How am I going to please my husband? How am I going to please my wife? That's not the question. The question is, how am I going to please the Lord? Because you know what? When you please the Lord, you're not always going to please your boss. Because boss might ask you to cheat on the numbers. And other people in your life, your, your family, your friends, they might, say, they, they might say to you, I don't want to hear all that Jesus junk. I don't want to hear about it. But we don't live to please our friends. We live to please the Lord. And that's what's, that, those are the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do that we're going to be rewarded for someday at the judgment. And our life as a Christian will be marked with goodness, righteousness, and truth because that is what God has created us to be in Christ. Corinthians says that we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In verse 10 of chapter 5, which is point 13, in your notes, it says, find out what pleases the Lord. And I think I just went through that. <laughs> um, the three points under that. How do we do that? How do we find out what pleases the Lord? Consult God in prayer. We consult God's word and we consult wise, godly people. Because if we're not, what's gonna, what, what, what the case usually is, is that we're consulting Oprah. We're consulting Deepak Chopra in his books. Right? And we're being deceived by empty words instead of being filled with the fullness of Christ and who He is and what He's told us to do and who He is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite uh, some teenagers. Where are they? There they are. We're gonna, I'm going to interview them real quick. Um, let me read one more verse. 1 Thessalonians 4.1. It says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. So he says you are. You're pleasing God. A lot of you guys, a lot of us, we're pleasing the Lord. But we haven't arrived. He says, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Don't ever think you arrived because that's sin as well. None of us have ever arrived. He points us back to Jesus. I urge you in the Lord Jesus, in Christ, look at who he is, to do this more and more. Become more and more holy and righteous in the way you're acting, in the way you're thinking. And he says, but in Christ, I'm going to help you do that. All right, this is uh, Kerry Cox and Nick Wildbacher. Wildbacher, I like saying that. Nick is a senior who's graduated, as you just saw up on the stage. And uh, Kerry is a junior, going to be a senior. And uh, I basically asked them to come up and, and, and talk about it. In the past year, both of them has, have figured out a little bit more what pleases the Lord, and they're, they're acting on that. And I thought it would be great for you guys to hear from them. So we've prepared a couple, some questions, some answers. And uh, I think I think it'll be really good and, and, and bless all of us. So um, first question, Carrie, we'll start with you. Briefly describe how God has transformed you over the past year or so. And what were the influences in your life that, that helped? Well, over the past two years, I've grown so much spiritually. I've been able to use and apply what God's word says and expects from his followers. And the things that helped me accomplish this is being part of the student ministries. If you are at the age to be in student ministries, I highly recommend it. Fellowship with people your own age is very important to accomplish I what God I has didn't pay her. I didn't pay her to no, say that. <laughs> I will. <laughs> and um, I used to be afraid of standing out and sharing my faith, but now I've realized that I talk about my faith all the time. And, in fact, I started a Bible study at Gehanna Public School. She's got her own youth. It's like 15 people. She's got like her own youth group there. So it's, it's awesome. It's great. So, Nick, Nick, what about you? Uh, Nick, how has God transformed you and, and what, is, what has helped that change? Well, um, I used to basically live my life for myself. God was nowhere in my life. I'd say he was for a point in time, but he really wasn't. Um, it was all about me, how I could do what I could do to please me. Um, and through some friends here, uh, youth group, Pastor Brett, and some other people, um, my life completely turned around, and now I'm living for God and trying to figure out what He wants me to do. And so that's the church going to do that. Great. Good. Next question I have for you guys is, what is your relationship with God and, and other people? How, how have those changed, basically based off the greatest commandment to love God and love people? How, are you, how has that changed in your life? Well, my relationship with God has grown extremely like, well, over the past few years, um, been able to communicate with God on a deeper level, both spiritual and personal. Um, 
I've been able to become more patient with others and more understanding of differences, whether they're Christian or not. And I used to be a what's-in-it-for-me kind of person. Now I'm, I focus on what's better for others. Good. Nick, what about you? Well, my relationship with God has uh, definitely a lot stronger than it's ever been. I'm getting into the Word more. I'm actually using books to help me study the Bible. Um, the friends that I've been choosing are definitely a lot better. They've been pushing me to get into the Word and read the Bible and come closer with God. And I'm doing the same for them. So it's definitely gotten definitely a lot stronger relationship with Him. Good. Um, we, for the next four or five weeks, we have all of the uh, fifth graders through seniors in with us in the celebrations. And so I've asked, I've asked these two just to... Um, Give some, what would be your advice for younger middle school students uh, as they're going through the next five or six years of high school? Well, I would say don't take your resources for granted. Even though God's Word is a 2,000-plus-year-old book, His words still apply to today. And also, through personal experience, be careful about who your friends are. Your friends do affect your lifestyle and your choices that you've made. And just surround yourself with godly people. Great. What about you, Nick? Well, my advice as I'm looking at my parents is listen to your parents because, trust me, they know everything. <laughs> wow. I have all the teenagers over here giving the evil eye. The parents are all clapping. But you know, they've been around the block a few times. They know what they're talking about. They do know what you're going through. Um, I didn't listen to them for so many years, and you know that's just one of the things I, I listen to them now. And one thing that's really stuck with me that my dad's always told me is, it's okay to make the little mistakes, but don't make the big ones. That will really change your life. So, that's Great. You Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. All right, here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. We're going to go very quickly through the next few points, if you don't mind. Um, verse 11 in chapter 5, it says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. So point 14, don't let your life be marked by sin. Our life, as he said, should be marked with goodness and righteousness and truth. Don't let it be marked by sin. If you take a step back from your life and look at the whole picture, is it marked by sin? Is that how how you would maybe describe your life? There's forgiveness and there's grace. But as a Christian, we should be striving more and more to become like Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 10 through 12 says, The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Number 15 uh, is exposed sin, point 15. Verse 11, if we go back to Ephesians 5, it says, Have nothing to do with those fruitless deeds of darkness, but expose them. Maybe there's stuff in your life um, that, that you haven't been calling it what it is, and it's sin. Maybe there's things that you expose yourself to, uh, but you don't expose it as sin. Um, I, I'm not going to pick on TV and tell you TV's bad. I'm not going to do that. But, but sometimes we'll watch a show, even the, and it's a great show, and we'd watch it, and the outcome is a good and and in, in it's a good show. But maybe something in there is sin. Maybe, maybe the approach we need to take is, when we're done, maybe, maybe talk as a family. Talk to a kid and say, you know, great show, but remember that one point? You see how that person's sin affected the rest of the story? It was sin. Not just kind of let it go on by. Or if we're in a conversation with people, and, it, and it's, it's, it's not going the way that the Lord would be pleased with. Do we, do we point that out gently? And try to bring the conversation back to something that would honor the Lord. And that's uh, point 16 from Ephesians uh, 5, 12, verse 12. It says, For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Shameful even to mention it. That, that hurts. <laughs> that stabs me because I, I can get locked into conversations where it's just, it's just not good. And it's just talking about sin and even glorifying it at times. So 16, ver- or, or Point 16, don't let your conversation be riddled with shameful things. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
Is the speech that is coming out of your mouth benefiting people? Is it encouraging those people? Is it building them up? Because if it's not, you probably shouldn't be talking about it. Verse 14 in chapter 5, it says, Wake up, O sleeper. So if you're, if you're asleep, wake up. Um, whoa, it's shaky. Shaky table. It says, Wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Maybe some of us in this room, some of you are not Christians. You've realized, I've been trying to get my salvation through my works. And maybe you've heard and realized today it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and my faith in Him. Turning from my sin and putting my faith in Jesus and who He is. And it's only because of Him that I can be righteous. If that's the case, talk to somebody you know that, that, that brought you, or come talk to me, Pastor Steve, or somebody that you know that they're, that they're a Christian, and say, I, I, need, I need Jesus. I need to be in Christ. Maybe there's a lot of us who are Christians in here. Maybe we need to wake up and say, you know, God's created me for righteousness, holiness, and truth. And that's who God is. And I'm created to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I need to change some things about maybe maybe the way I talk. Maybe the things I think about. Maybe the things I do behind closed doors in the dark. There's a um, there's an old Puritan proverb. Uh, it says, The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. If you look at verse 14, the last line says, And Christ will shine on you. The same sun that melts the ice. Maybe your heart... It's a heart of stone that we sang about that, that, that Christ needs to melt and change. The book of Ezekiel says that God will remove our heart of stone and put, us in, put within us a heart of flesh and put His Spirit within us. It says the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Maybe you're clay. You are a Christian. You're being molded by the Father into what He wants you to be. Maybe He just needs to harden you a little bit more and change you, make you look like what He wants you to look like. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word and look into it. And uh, I thank you just for uh, everybody in here. I pray, God, that you will help us all to be more and more like you. But, Lord, I just pray that it won't be just to check off things on a list. Because it's only you that make us righteous. Makes us righteous. It is not our works. I thank you for uh, your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins. And that uh, his righteousness can be exchanged for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.